morning. The scripture reading today is Luke 9, 37 to 50. If you want to turn to it in your Bibles. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirits and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. All were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Ellie. Good morning. Uh, will you allow me uh, like an extra nerdy introduction? Is that okay? You're going to love it. Um, if you've ever read the Lord of the Rings trilogy, um, you'll know there are uh, there's portions of that epic tale that take, they're kind of set within specific regions, right? So like at the start, it's all set within the Shire. Uh, there's a stretch of the story that takes place in the old forest with that magical character, Tom Bombadil. Um, Tom Bombadil. There's, uh, there's a portion that's set, like set in Rivendell with the House of Elrond. Um, and then there are stretches of the story that kind of take place on the road, right? As, as uh, they are kind of journeying from one place to another. Uh, there's a lot that happens in the lives of the fellowship as they journey um, uh, on their way together. Um, and then... You also know that the entire story arc is leading to a certain destination, right? Um, Frodo's destination, his journey is towards Mount Doom in Mordor. Okay? Thank you. Um, Luke's gospel story, it's not high fantasy, but it's historical storytelling. His storytelling of the life of Jesus takes on similar forms. So there's a section within Luke's gospel that is set within a certain region, uh, and then there's a stretch of the story that kind of takes place as they are journeying, uh, and then ultimately the, the story is, is leading to uh, a certain destination for a specific reason. And we've kind of, we can kind of structure it like this. Um, 
part one was, you know, the introduction to, to Jesus' life and his preparation for ministry. Um, the, the second section, which is really from chapter four to, to roughly chapter 10, uh, is set within a specific region. It all kind of takes place within Galilee. Um, in that section, which we've been studying for quite some time, uh, Luke's telling us the beginnings of Jesus' ministry within Galilee. And we're actually finishing that section today. Uh, and you'll notice in chapter 9, verse 51, which we'll look at next week, uh, it says that Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. So that's the, the, the turning point in the story where uh, they, they begin to travel. They begin to, to kind of hit the road. And Luke there gives us really from, from, uh, from chapter 9, verse 51 to the middle of chapter uh, 19, Luke kind of gives us the detail of this epic journey as Jesus makes his way to his own Mount Doom with an equally cool name, Golgotha, place of the skull, um, for a, a specific reason, right, where, where he will undo the evil power at work in the world. And one of the main themes that you'll see through that kind of part three, that journey to Jerusalem, is this theme of discipleship. Um, we, we really see Jesus begin to kind of turn the heat up in his training of his disciples. Uh, and so for us, uh, today, uh, we ourselves as disciples of Jesus, if we want to make it to the end, we, we must pay close attention uh, to these lessons and be discipled ourselves and apply them to our lives. Let me remind you, though, um, as we seek to kind of apply these things to our lives, in Luke's story, there's only one main character, okay? There's only one hero of the story, and it's, it's not you, it's Jesus Christ, um, we've, we've learned that he's the, the son of God, he's the Messiah, uh, the father said last week he's the chosen one, um, he has been sent from heaven to earth with all power and authority, uh, he's here to be the king of God's kingdom, to proclaim God's kingdom, to usher it in, we've seen this kingdom breaking in in uh, some magnificent ways so far, but although Jesus is the sole hero of the story, the center of the story, there are other important characters, right? The, the disciples. And, and they are important, not because they are special in any way in and of themselves. They are important solely because Jesus chooses them, because he calls them. And so what's astonishing is they are important, not because of their, their pedigree, uh, but because their lack, in spite of their lack of, Christ has chosen them and it's the exact same for us today. Um, if you are a disciple of Jesus, you're a side character, right? You're, you're not the, the center of the story, but you are important because God says you are, because God chooses you despite your lack of pizzazz. And all through the Bible, this is how God operates. He chooses weak, foolish failures to carry out his will, and Jesus is doing the exact same thing with his disciples. And I encouraged us a number of weeks ago to, to go easy on the disciples. We can kind of be unnecessarily harsh on them at times. And the older I get, the more I want to have patience with them. I think they're, I think they're doing their best, although they screw up a lot. Um, so, so don't be unnecessarily harsh to them when the text doesn't tell us to be. Um, be but saying that, that doesn't mean we're not meant to see their failures, right? Because they are failures. And, the, and we're meant to sympathize with their failures, right? They are weak, and we are weak. They are foolish, and we are foolish. They need discipled, and we need discipled. 
they need to be taught, they need to be transformed and sanctified in order for them to look more and more like their teacher, Jesus. And it's the exact same for us. And so if, if next week we begin that journey towards Jerusalem and, and Jesus turns up the heat in his training of his disciples, well, in this section, which acts as a, like a transition into that section, we see their great need for that discipleship. Because what we see today is the disciples' failures. Um, we, don't, we see here today that they don't fully get who Jesus is yet, do they? That they, they don't really understand what his kingdom is all about. They, they don't really know what it means to be part of his kingdom. Right? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean to be part of his kingdom? Well, the text today gives us a pretty good introduction, a pretty good uh, answer to that question. Let me pray one more time, and we'll take a closer look. Um, Jesus, we thank you for choosing us, and we thank you for calling us, um, despite uh, our, our failures and our weakness and, and our foolishness and, and our sin. And we thank you for your patience. We thank you that, um, it, uh, that this journey is about your faithfulness and what you are doing um, within us. Um, but show us again this morning your glory, Jesus, and, and what it means to be part of your kingdom. Um, Spirit, be at work within us. In your name we pray. Amen. Verse 37. It says, On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, so uh, don't, don't forget the events of the previous day, right? When Jesus, he took Peter, James, and John up to the mountain to pray, and Jesus reveals to those three the, the, the splendor of his heavenly glory, right? They, they saw with their eyes the Son of God in his true glory, and there, in the presence of God, they get this foretaste of heaven, right? They, they get this, this glimpse of heaven, and, and it's so good that they suggest to Jesus, let's build some tents, right? Let's, let's, let's set up here. Let's, let's make this our, our residence and stay uh, but they don't stay up there. Here the next morning, they descend the mountain, and they're, they're met by a startling reminder of the, the darkness and the, the, the brokenness of the world that they live in. Um, but th- this dark and, and broken place is, is where the Son of Man has come to bring God's kingdom. And so descend the mountain, he does. Uh, he, he has not come to dwell in all of his glory at, at a mountaintop, Right, revealing his, his glory to a, a few. No, he, he has come to enter into the darkness right, where those who are suffering and, and low and lost can be brought in to behold his glory and his majesty. And that's exactly what we see happen here. Um, Pastor and author Mike McKinley pointed out that on the mountaintop, they witnessed God the Father's delight in his glorious son. And it was glorious. But here at the, the foot of the mountain, there is another father who is in agony because his only son is afflicted terribly by a demon. So, so we're meant to see the, the contrast of what was happening on the mountaintop, the, the glorious scene, and what's happening at, at the, the, the bottom of the mountain, the, the pain and the agony, right? There, there's an obvious contrast that we're meant to see, and it's a reminder that, that the Son of God did not come to live in glory here on earth but to wade into human misery and set captives free. And so as they come down the mountain, 
we're told a great crowd met him. And this man, this poor father who's in the crowd, cried out to Jesus. The, the word literally means to, to, to shriek or, or, or to shout out. It's this, this desperate parent's voice crying out to Jesus. And he begs Jesus to look at his son, his only child. And Luke describes this boy's um, pitiable affliction. He, he's seized by a demon spirit. And the boy shrieks, and he's thrown into convulsions, foaming in his mouth. It says it shatters him. There's hardly any relief for him at all. Mark's gospel adds that he grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid, and he convulses. Matthew specifically identifies seizures from epilepsy. So remember, Luke is a physician, so he, he can probably diagnose what's going on here. The, the child is suffering from a, a, a terrible physical condition, but we're told that it's more than that as well. There's, there's a demonic oppression that's involved here. And so the father is quite understandably completely helpless. He, he sees his son being destroyed, but he can do nothing to stop it. And in verse 40, we're introduced to the failures of the disciples. We we see what's happening here. The the man says that he begged his disciples to cast out the demon, but they couldn't. And presumably the disciples in question here are the nine that didn't go with Jesus to the mountaintop, um, but were, were meant to be surprised at their inability to take care of the situation, right? Because just at the very beginning of this chapter, in verse one, remember Jesus had given the disciples power and authority over all demons, it says, and to to cure diseases. So, So their failure here is not due to a lack of power and authority. Something else is at work. They've been given power and authority over demons and to cure diseases. So what's gone wrong? Why were they unable to cast this one out? The, the answer to the question is actually given to us in all three synoptic accounts of this story. In each of Matthew, Mark, and Luke's uh, perspectives to this event, the problem focuses in on a lack of faith. In each one. In fact, Jesus says this line in all three counts. He says, after being uh, begged by the, by the father to, to help his son, and after being told that the disciples had, couldn't do anything, Jesus says, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? So you might think, wow, is that the sharpest you ever hear Jesus give a rebuke? Does he lose his patience here? Does Jesus kind of flip his lid? In order to understand what's happening here, you need to know he's always intentional with his words. Um, He's always, he doesn't say anything by accident or out of rage. And what he's actually doing here is quoting scripture, which is what Jesus does when he feels emotions deeply, right? Remember when he's, he's hanging on the cross and he feels the, the, the pain and the agony of that situation. He quotes Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here in this situation, he's feeling the, the deep pain of what's happening. He, he, he knows what's gone wrong and it grieves him. And so he quotes scripture and he says, oh, faithless and twisted generation, 
And this crowd of Jews would have understood immediately what he was referencing because he's quoting Moses in Deuteronomy 32 where Moses is lamenting the faithlessness of Israel. And Moses isn't the only one to use this language. Isaiah uses it in the same way. Jeremiah uses it in the same way. It's, and so Jesus, what he does is he uses scripture to give language to the truth that he's trying to communicate. He's not losing it. He's, he's saying, he's giving them the, the fundamental problem to this situation. He says the fundamental problem is that they are faithless. So it's not because of a lack of power or authority that they fail. It's a lack of faith. Um, in Matthew's gospel, after Jesus rebukes the demon and the boy and he heals him, uh, we're told that the disciples, they asked Jesus privately afterwards, why couldn't we cast that demon out? And Jesus says very clearly, he says, because of your little faith. And he tells them that if they can have faith, even faith the size of a mustard seed, which is small, then they can move mountains. Like he says, nothing will be impossible. They fail because of their lack of faith. Mark's gospel centers around a lack of faith. And he, he actually invites not just the disciples to have greater faith, but the boy's father. And the, there the father says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus replies, if you can. He says, all things are possible for the one who believes. It's, and the father cries out immediately, I believe, help my unbelief. So, so the story, it's, it's this call to have faith. It's this call to believe in who Jesus is and what he can do. The disciples, they, they can't drive out the demon because of a lack of faith. And right here is when we begin to see their failure, which reveals their deep need of discipleship. They don't fully understand who Jesus is. And so what I want to do for you this morning is kind of unfold the disciples' failure, this failure to understand who Jesus is, this failure to understand what the kingdom of God is all about, um, and I want to unfold that in the form of three theses. Um, the first one is a lack of faith means that we have a small view of God. A lack of faith means a small view of God. That, that's what Jesus says is going on here, right? They, they're faithless. They don't really understand who he is and what he's capable of. They have this small view of God. And so what does Jesus do? He calls for the boy. And, and, and we're told in verse 42 that, that while the boy is coming, the demon throws him to the ground and convulses him. So it's like this demon, he's, he's trying to show his control. He's trying to show his power. He has shaken the faith of the disciples. Maybe he can do the same for Jesus. No chance. Jesus shows him who's the boss. He shows him who he is. He rebukes the spirit. He heals the boy, and he restores him to his father. It's this beautiful scene. And the result of this is everyone's eyes are opened. And they were told they are all astonished at the majesty of God. Right? What's, what's the result of this section? The, the main result is not that the boy is healed. The main result is that they are all astonished at the majesty and the glory of God. They, they all marvel 
at the glory of God in Jesus. Their, their, their view of God is increased. Their, their faith grows. Nothing is impossible when you believe in who I am. That was their failure. Their, their lack of faith meant they had a small view of God. Be careful here, though, okay? Because that, this is one of those passages that if you, you, you get it wrong slightly, you can eventually end up verging into a pretty dangerous place. And you, in order for that not to happen, you must know that the main goal of Jesus in this section is not to heal the boy. The, the main goal of Jesus is to increase their faith, right? To, to give them a larger view of God. Jesus' goal is not to answer every single prayer request on the spot. His goal is to increase your faith. And sometimes he does that by answering prayers on the spot. Oftentimes, he does it by saying, wait. Right? So, so we must see that the main point of this passage is the increasing of faith, the, the growing of their view of God, the marveling at his majesty. The main point is not the healing of the boy, as good and as merciful as that is. The healing of the boy is just the means for the increasing of their faith. Am I making that clear? Let me say it in, in this way. We make the mistake of turning this passage into a formula for getting what we want, okay? So I, I really want this to happen, and it's maybe a good thing. Maybe it's something that I, Jesus would love this. It's fill in the blank. I want this to happen, and Jesus says, in order for me to get this, I must have greater faith. And as soon as we turn it into that kind of formula, we make the mistake again of putting ourselves at the center of the solution. Right? We, we've, we've made it about what we, what we must do. We must increase our faith. We must gain something that we lack. I must become greater, which is completely the opposite of the lesson Jesus is trying to teach us through this text. He's not saying that you must become better. You must become greater. You must find what you lack. That's just putting more of the onus on you. Right? He's saying you must have a greater view of me. You must have greater dependence on me, on what I can do, on what I'm capable of. I must become greater in your view, which means you must become smaller. I'll use that word for now. That was their failure. And you see how their failure unfolds over the passages. A lack of faith means a small view of God. And so the next thesis is a small view of God means we have a lofty view of ourselves. A small view of God means a lofty view of self. And Jesus, he, he sees this going on in his disciples' hearts and he acts quickly to rid it of them, rid them of it. They, they have this lofty view of themselves, especially after Jesus performs this miracle, right? He cast out this, this stubborn demon that no one else could, could touch. And the crowds are astonished at the glory of God, right? They erupt. They, they're marveling at everything Jesus was doing, verse 43 says. And so you can imagine, as they hear the excitement of this crowd, why they begin to argue. They, they begin to debate their position in the kingdom. Man, this kingdom is, is amazing, right? Right? 
It's great. Jesus, there's nothing that can get in Jesus' way. And so naturally they begin to debate their positions. Each one wants to be well positioned for a place of power. When Jesus eventually turns his power against the, the occupying Roman forces, right? And Jesus sees their failure. He sees this, this argument coming up. He knows that a small view of God always results in a lofty view of self. And so while the crowd is still marveling, he pulls them aside and he tells his disciples one more time, hey, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. He says that the praise of the crowds that you hear right now, it will die out. That the fickle hearts of men would eventually betray him and send him to his death. And the disciples, they, they don't understand. That they can't conceive how this, this man who has all power and authority could possibly come up against a foe that could defeat him. And so they don't understand. And they don't understand because they're focused on rising to the top. So Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he calls a child over and he uses him as an object lesson and he puts the child by his side, and in effect, he says, this is what greatness looks like in my kingdom. If the disciples are willing to embrace and receive a child for Jesus' sake, they will be receiving Jesus himself. And if they receive Jesus, they will have received the Father who has sent him. And using a child to make his point, it was, it was shocking because in their culture, no one is lower, no one is more insignificant, no one is more useless than a child. They, they, had, they had a lower status than the slaves. In, in, in the home of a children, in, in the home, children were useful for one thing. They would, they would clean the, the, the feet of a guest and then they were sent away. A child has no money, no power, no recognition, no accomplishments. And here Jesus is calling his disciples to imitate him by showing love to even the least. Jesus is saying, this is what true greatness looks like in my kingdom. He, he, he turns their expectation completely upside down and he says, whoever is least among you is the greatest. We make that same mistake, don't we? Who do you want to associate with? Who do you want to befriend? Who do you want in your home? Who do we want in our church? Jesus came to seek and save the lost, the marginalized, the broken, the worst sinners, the very least in society. Just so far, he's shown us that in Luke's gospel. The, the, the ones who are kind of made into little heroes in the story so far is a pregnant virgin teenage girl, uh, insignificant shepherds, tax collectors, a prostitute, an unclean woman, right? So the, the, the people who seem to be great in the eyes of the world are not necessarily perceived in the same way by the kingdom, by the king of God's kingdom. Jesus is calling the lowly the disciples, their lack of faith led them to having this small view of God, which led them to having this lofty view of themselves. And lastly, we see the, the lofty view of self 
means they have a low view of others. Lofty view of self means low view of others. And in the last section, in verse 49 to 50, uh, John says, kind of surprises John. Nomi says, Peter, he kind of puts his foot in it, so it's nice to see someone else kind of taking a swing at it. Peter probably says, amen. Uh, but John says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop them because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. Right, they're arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They, they are so concerned with power that when someone who is outside of their group of 12 is trying to minister in Jesus' name, they try to stop it. And Jesus, he, he sees John's narrow exclusivity that says, hey, if, if they're not part of our group in its purest form, then, then they have nothing whatsoever to do with us. And he tells John, what? Don't, don't say that. Don't stop them. He's not against you. Whose name is he casting out demons in? Mine. He's a friend. You see, John's lofty view of himself and of the inner group led him to having a low view of others, a friend. He, he saw even an ally, not as someone to cheer on, but as competition. We do that, don't we? Do you see the, the failures of the disciples? Do you see how those failures unfold? Their lack of faith meant they had a small view of God. The small view of God meant they had a lofty view of themselves. And a lofty view of themselves meant they had a low view of others. And we fail in the exact same way. They didn't really understand who Jesus was yet. They didn't really understand what it meant to be in his kingdom, what it meant to be great in his kingdom. But that's okay right now, okay? It, that, that's, that's precisely why Jesus is here, okay? Don't lose sight of that. He, he doesn't lose it with them. He doesn't give up on them. It, it's why he's come to earth, to teach them about the kingdom, to display his kingdom, and ultimately to be delivered into the hands of men to die so that we might enter into the kingdom, Right, keep reading, and apart from one, apart from Judas Iscariot, each of these failure disciples will understand. They will get who Jesus really is. They will understand what it means to be great in his kingdom. But it'll take deep, painful discipleship. Right, it'll take more failure. It'll take the journey. It'll take suffering. It'll ultimately take the cross of Jesus, but that's why he's come. And what they eventually learn is that the kingdom of God is completely upside down from this world. So one last time, the disciples' failure was that they lacked faith, which meant they had a small view of God. Their small view of God meant they had a lofty view of themselves, and a lofty view of themselves led them to having a low view of others, but that is not the kingdom of God. In the kingdom, it's the other way around. Jesus wants us to be full of faith, which means having a big view of God. And a big view of God means we'll have a humble view of ourselves. And a humble view of ourselves will lead us to having high, loving view of others. That is a description 
of a disciple of Jesus because, friends, it's a description of Jesus himself. I mentioned last week that, that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, when, when that veil is remo- removed from us and we behold his glory, we are transformed from one degree to the next into his likeness. We become like him. And this is who Jesus is. No one had greater faith in the Father than Jesus. We, we've seen that. He, he's, he's the most dependent person who ever lived on earth. He's so utterly dependent on his father and everything that he did. It, it defined his identity. It defined his position in the world. He had this, this huge view of the father and it informed how he lived his life. And that, that huge view of the father meant that he could enter into humility in this life. Philippians 2 says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Right? He's the ultimate example of humility. He came not to be served, but to serve. He came in humility, and out of that humility, he had such a loving view of others, especially those who were lowly. Right? Especially the lost, especially the despised, especially the dirty. He's come to seek them out and to save them. Right? Right? So that is, that's who Jesus is. And it's also a description of a true follower of Jesus, what, what that follower of Jesus is being transformed into. We have the same failures as the disciples, but there's grace. Okay, he'll have patience with you just like he had patience with his apostles. Right? He, he, he'll, he'll take you on a journey just like he took them on one. He, he's called you to himself just like he called them. And he died for you on the cross just like he died for them. Okay, he's, he's doing all of that for a purpose. Ultimately, for the, the glory of the Father, but also to increase your faith. Right? He, he, that's what he wants for you. He wants you to believe. He, he wants to increase your faith. He wants to give you what he gave those three on the mountaintop and what he, he gave this crowd at the foot of the mountain. He wants you to marvel at his glory and his majesty. And he wants that marveling at his glory to affect your life, right? For it to change the way you view yourself and others for it to change your understanding of what it means to be great in God's kingdom. As we close, I want to give you two examples of what this looks like practically, because that's important, right? It's all, okay, that's great, but what does it look like in real life to have faith, to have a big view of God, a humble view of yourself, and a love for others? Um, the first example, I think you get a pretty beautiful and clear sight of someone who has faith at the end of Paul's letter to the Philippians. Um, the Apostle Paul learned to have a big view of God. Right? He, he had this grand view of the glory of Jesus. It blinded him. <laughs> um, and then he learned to gain a larger and larger view of God through various trials and sufferings. And that journey, it increased his faith. And for Paul, that, that increase in his faith, it wasn't due to God answering every single one of his prayers. 
Um, God did answer prayers for Paul. He did many great things through Paul's prayers, but he also increased his faith by saying no to some of his prayers or by saying at least not yet. He he said no to taking away his thorn in the flesh that he he prayed repeatedly for. He said no because it's going to teach Paul about Jesus. It would teach Paul that his grace was sufficient for him and that his power was made perfect in his weakness and that when Paul is weak, that's when he is truly strong, right? And, And Paul's dependence on Jesus through the struggle, he gains a greater faith in Christ. And so Paul, through yeses in prayer and through noes in prayer, his faith is increased, and he, he gains this greater view of God, which, which leads him to having this appropriate view of himself and, and others. And so what did faith look like in Paul's life? Well, it, it results in Paul being able to say this, rejoice. It, res, it results in Paul rejoicing no matter what came his way in life. Right, Philippians is Paul's most joyful letter, but he, he wrote it from prison, <laughs> just kind of bonkers in the eyes of the world, right? But he says in Philippians 4, 4, while sitting in chains, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. That's faith. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He's only able to say that because he has a big view of God. Right? He's, he's only, it's only because this, this grand view of God that he's able to say in verse 11, I, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Right? I, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. Both of those things I can do. Okay? In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty or hunger, right? abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That, that last line sounds an awful lot like what Jesus tells the convulsing boy's father. All things are possible for the one who believes. I can do all things through him, Christ, who strengthens me. Right? But, but when Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, he's not talking about getting everything that he asks for. He's talking about being content and rejoicing no matter what comes his way. This is what having faith looks like. This is, what look at, this, this is what having a big view of God, this, this grand vision of the glory of Jesus looks like. It looks like being steady. Through the highs, through the lows, on the mountaintops and in the deepest valleys, you're not thrown into a whirlwind because you know who God is. You know him in Jesus. Right, so when you walk through the deepest valleys of life, maybe when someone you thought was a friend slanders you, when you fail to get that job or that promotion that you really wanted, 
when life isn't working out the way you expected it, relationships, marriage, pregnancy, even through tears, you can still trust the Lord and know that he is good. Right? That he, he has a plan. And you can be content and even rejoice. And you can love and serve others like Paul writing a letter from prison only because he has this big view of God. That's what it looks like. Um, I'll give you my last example and I'm finishing here um, because I want you to know this, this last thing and it's connected. Know this, that having faith, no matter what comes your way, it doesn't mean that you're not allowed to feel things. Okay? But equally true in the gospel, feeling things like sorrow, sadness, maybe even anger at times, that doesn't mean that we can't have faith in God. Okay? And so my last example is David. He, he, he exemplifies that all through the Psalms. Um, this week, my friend Andy, Andy McKinney, love you, Andy. Um, he sent me a uh, Tim Keller devotional in Psalm 69. Uh, David's prayer in Psalm 69, it shows us what brutal honesty before the Lord and having faith in the Lord actually looks like. And um, we don't have time to read the whole prayer, but it opens like this. David prays, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I'm weary and I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for the Lord, with waiting for my God, he says. Here's David crying out for salvation crying out for help and waiting, waiting for a response, waiting for an answer to his prayers. And he's pretty honest. And we don't have time to read it all, but he gets even more brutally honest through his prayer. And God invites us to be honest with him in our prayers. God cares about how we feel, but, but he also calls us to have faith at the same time. And David shows us that you can do both at the same time. Because this is how he ends this long, brutally honest prayer. He says, let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring and his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. David feels the sorrow of his current situation, but what does he do? He's, he's looking forward. He, he has hope, he has faith in who God is, faith in what God will do. I'll just read you Keller's thoughts on this and then we'll be done. He says, there's no indication that David's pain and circumstances have changed. He's praying this through tears probably. There's no indication that David's pain or circumstances have changed. So, this final burst of praise is astonishing. David looks forward 
to a time where there will be no sickness, evil, or oppression, when all things will be put right. And Paul says that in some inexplicable but wonderful way, our sufferings now are going to make that eventual glory even more brilliant and wonderful. If we believe in Christ, this is a guaranteed inheritance that cannot be eaten by moth or stolen by time. When we receive healings or deliverances now, they are just small windows into great things to come. We must learn to look through those windows when they come, cling to his promised salvation and praise him. Friends, Jesus wants us to have faith. Faith in who he really is, faith in what he is capable of, and what he is bringing us through, and ultimately hope in a future glory that is coming for those whom he died on a cross for, for those who have placed their trust in him. The cross gives us the hope, doesn't it? It gives us hope no matter what we're going through. We can look to the cross for proof that he cares, right? Look to the cross for proof that he has a plan, proof that he knows our sorrows and our our sufferings intimately, proof that he has done the work to bring us near. And may that, that large view of who God is give us a humble view of ourselves and lead us to living a sacrificial life of love towards other just like Jesus. Let's stand and pray. Um, again, Jesus, we just want to thank you for who you are. We thank you for your, your grace, your mercy, and your, your patience with us. We thank you for loving us, for taking us on a journey uh, that, that you are patiently showing us your glory. You are patiently uh, transforming us from one degree to the next, slowly over time into your likeness. Would you give us patience ourselves uh, as we make that journey? And would you, would you help us to be a community that, 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 that points each other to Jesus, that lifts each other up in prayer, that, that fights in this world against evil powers of darkness in your name? For the glory of the Father and for the increasing of our faith, um, may, we, may we see who you are Thank you that you reveal who you are in your word and in our worship and when we gather together, when we pray, when two or three are gathered in your name, you're there. Have you've given us everything that we need um, because you've given us you. You've given us yourself. Um, forgive us, Lord, when we, we try to go at it on our own we do try to uh, muster up our own energy. Would you teach us to be uh, fully dependent on you? Uh, to, to actually believe you when you say, apart from me, you can do nothing. So don't try to do anything without me. Um, make, us that, make us that people who look like you, Jesus, um, who, who are mature disciples in your kingdom. Uh, what, a, what a powerful place to be. Uh, what a loving place to be. What a place of hope. 
And I pray for those who are in their, their valleys, Lord, who are going through uh, some hard times. We thank you that you promise to be with us. You promise to even reveal your glory to us at the bottom of the valley uh, in ways that we don't get when we're at the top. It's through our, uh, our weakness that your power is made perfect. May we believe that, Lord. We believe. Help our unbelief. In your name we pray. Amen.